0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Revelation chapter three verses seven through thirteen in a sermon entitled "An Open Door." This is part three in this brief address to the Church at Philadelphia. Uh, so once more this evening in our third sermon now from this text we 're considering the lord 's address to the Church at Philadelphia, Revelation chapter seven verses our chapter three verses seven to thirteen and the Lord has addressed himself now to the church uh, at Philadelphia that are indicative terms in terms that are indicative of his deity. Uh, he is the one who is holy. He is the one who is true. Uh, terms used of Yahweh in the Old Testament now applied to Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the New Testament. And he has also addressed the church now in terms of his authority. Uh, he is the one who holds the key of David. Uh, He is the householder, if you will, of the kingdom. Uh, He has the government upon his shoulder, so to speak. The Davidic kingdom, the messianic kingdom. As the one who holds the keys, uh, he is the one who opens and no one shuts. The one who shuts and no one opens. So now, as the one with authority over the kingdom, uh, the one who opens and no one shuts, he says to the church at Philadelphia then, I know your works. He will judge each one of us according to his works, uh, as he judges those uh, according to their works. And he says, now, according to their works, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. It's an obvious reference to the kingdom, and he has put before them an open door to the kingdom of God, so to speak, and a reference to the fact that the church in Philadelphia has a living, thriving faith. They have been justified by faith, and those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Uh, Not like Sardis, the church was characterized as dead, here in Philadelphia there is a living, healthy, thriving faith. There is before them, uh, do their justification by faith, there is before them an open door to the kingdom that no one can shut. And there is for all those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you turn from sin and you trust Christ alone uh, by the grace of God, and there is a door that is open to you uh, to the kingdom. We are citizens of that kingdom now, transferred out of the realm of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of his love. For all those who follow him in faith, um, there is an open door. There is in this age as well an open door, uh, so to speak, Uh, Jesus Christ holds the key of David and he has determined that this age during the age of the church uh, there is an open door with the gospel that he has flung open as it were the doors to the kingdom in the preaching of the gospel and he is compelling uh, those from the highways and the hedges so to speak compelling them to come in. That should be extremely encouraging. It would be extremely encouraging to the church at Philadelphia to have the Lord commend them or to uh, to make this kind of a pronouncement about them, but also commending to us here uh, or encouraging to us here in the sense that the Lord has opened the door to the kingdom through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and we can enter in, but also uh, those who hear us uh, may enter in. Uh, those who hear the preaching of the gospel, this is a time in which the gospel is preached and... The people of God, the elect of God are flooding into the kingdom. Extremely encouraging. Uh, Persecuted now by the Jews who presume to shut the door of the kingdom to this church in Philadelphia. The Lord essentially says, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the one who holds the keys, right? I am the one who uh, opens and no one shuts. All who come to God through me, the Lord says, will enter in. Uh, To him, the doorkeeper opens. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the doorkeeper, and he has opened the door for these precious saints in Philadelphia and that door remains open even to us in our age for us to enter in and it remains open for others to enter in uh, at our preaching of the gospel. So Paul, and refers to this in other places as well, refers to an open door of faith to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 14 verse 27. Uh, he refers to an open door to preach the gospel in Troas in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 using that same open door language. And so what are we supposed to do then in response to this? We are to keep his word. We're not to deny his name through our silence. There is an open door before us. We are to preach the gospel and enter in with God's people, okay? So there's an open door. He is the householder. He holds the key of David. He opens, no one shuts. Then as we saw last week, the Lord then refers to those Jews who persecuted the church at Philadelphia and refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. They say that they are Jews. The Lord says they are lying. In fact, he says they will come down and bow down or proscuneo. They will prostrate themselves before the rest of the Gentile nations who do not know me. Verse 9, he says, indeed, I will make them come and proscuneo, bow before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Now, in doing so, Jesus refers to promises in Isaiah that were made to Israel and he, he applies those promises to the predominantly Gentile church at Philadelphia. You see what the Lord is doing, okay? And it's important that we put those two things together from the sermon last week. Jesus refers to promises in Isaiah that were made to Israel, and God applies them, those promises, to the new covenant Israel of God. He applies them to the church at Philadelphia, saying to them essentially, to the church at Philadelphia, you are my portion, you are my prized possession, the apple of my eye, you are the people of God, you are true Israel. Those Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ, who have rejected their Messiah, they say they are Jews, they are not, they are liars. The door is open to you who put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what is in key, uh, is important to remember. The Lord then concludes his encouragement to the church with this fantastic promise in verse 10. And this is where we pick up on our text from last week. Verse 10. He says to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept The word is tereo, means maintained or held to, watched over. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you, same word, tereo, keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now verse 10 is a chronically misunderstood text. And let's, we want to consider and examine exactly what it is that the Lord is saying here and make sure that we have it straight, right? Verse 10, first, consider with me the condition under which the promise is made. Consider the condition under which the promise is made. The Lord makes this promise because, verse 10, you have kept my command to persevere. Now, I'm going to invoke a little grammar here at the beginning for those of you who are studying Greek. My command, this is important, it's all based on, it has to be based and founded in the grammar, okay? My command translates tan lagon, the word. And tan lagon is in the accusative rather than in the genitive. It's the object rather than in the genitive. To persevere is in the genitive. It should be my perseverance, right? So we have my command or my, the word in the accusative, to persevere in the genitive. The Lord, didn't accidentally switch the accusative with the genitive. The Lord didn't accidentally switch or mistake the genitives. The genitive here in the grammar points us to his perseverance rather than his command. So what does that all mean? A more appropriate way to render this first part of verse 10 would be this. Because you have kept, aorist active indicative, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, literally what that is, or the way that that should be translated. Or better, because you have watched over, observed, held to, or followed the word of my perseverance, or the example of my perseverance. Probably what better understood what the Lord is speaking of here. The Lord commends them for holding to his example of perseverance. In other words, the saints in Philadelphia— You can ask one of the folks studying Greek to help you with that. Maybe explain it a little more clearly. All right. In other words, the saints in Philadelphia have followed the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in their perseverance. They have followed the example of the Lord in their perseverance, uh, endurance, under suffering, under trial and persecution. They have been faithful to the example of our Lord in their own suffering. Now, certainly there's a There is the common command contained in the New Testament for believers to persevere in the faith. He who endures to the end will be saved. We know those examples. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, the Lord says. He who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not fit for the kingdom of God. We are commanded by the Lord to persevere in the faith, to endure to the end, and he who endures to the end will be will be saved. But here, not as much an emphasis on the command to persevere as there is a specific emphasis given to the Lord's example in perseverance, the Lord's example in his own endurance under suffering. And we, beloved, are called to follow his example in our own suffering. Think with me of Hebrews chapter 12. We won't turn there, but listen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. We are to look to him who is the author and finisher of our faith Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, counted it a common thing, a, a, a minor thing, you could say, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So, on the one hand, we do consider the command of scripture that we are to endure to the end. But here, the emphasis is more on the Lord's commendation of this church at Philadelphia for following his own example of perseverance under suffering. It becomes a really important distinction. We're not going to be exempt from suffering in this life. We're not going to be exempt. Why? Because Jesus Christ, our Lord himself suffered. And for the joy for the joy that was set before him, he counted by comparison the shame a minor thing, a small thing by comparison for the joy that was set before him. Well, brothers and sisters, we have a joy that is laid before us. For the joy that is set before us by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has flung open a door to the kingdom for us, our suffering, our suffering will be a momentary light affliction compared with the eternal weight of glory that is being produced. Do you see? We're to follow in his example of suffering. There's a sense in which Paul, Paul explains it this way, that we fill up in our own suffering, in our own affliction, that which is lacking in Christ. It doesn't mean that Christ's affliction or Christ's suffering was somehow imperfect, but it means that the work of Jesus Christ continues. The work of Jesus Christ continues in the preaching of the gospel by his people now until the end of the age. And in our own suffering, in our own persecution, we fill up in that sense what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus Christ. Do you see? There's a sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ knew. <laughs> he set the pattern that suffering comes before glory. And there is a truth to the fact that you and I, for you and I also, we who are united to him, for us, suffering comes before glory. You see, Christian, for the, for the, the one in union with Jesus Christ through faith, suffering, trials, persecution, tribulation, which is used extensively Uh, for Christian suffering in the age in which we now find ourselves, those are not indications of condemnation. They're not indications of his wrath, but rather they are indications of our identification with him. Those who are in union with Jesus Christ, those who are identified with Jesus Christ will suffer. His people will share in his afflictions in the same way that he shared with us in flesh and blood. And because we share with him in his suffering, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. It's a glorious thought. Now we're to do so, we're to persevere, we're to endure in a way that honors him. And that points to what the Lord is saying to this church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia has suffered in a way that honors the Lord's example of suffering. They have kept, they have observed his good example in perseverance under affliction now, so many in our day look to Jesus Christ and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ that fills their understanding is the poor baby born in a manger because there was no room in the inn right the example of Jesus Christ that fills their understanding is he's a great teacher that confounded the Jews and haven't heard teaching like that ever or he is the personification of compassionate love. Is he all those things? Yes, he's all those things, right? Or they, they, the understanding of the example of Jesus Christ that fills their minds is the Lord healing the sick or feeding the hungry. The example of the ideal man. His work at the cross, merely an example of how someone should, should suffer well under adversity, And as much as we're instructed in Scripture to look at the example of Jesus Christ in his poverty, in his wisdom, uh, in his compassion, in his love, all of those examples, all of those examples, Jesus Christ is the perfect man, he is the ideal man, but all of those examples converge into one, as it were, in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering and in his death. They converge at the cross, so to speak, in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the crucified Savior. Paul says, I'm determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Right? Because it's the Lord's suffering to the point of death, even the death of the cross, that's the reason for his exaltation. Such that in all of that, then, he's the suffering servant. We're to look to the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, and we are to look to the example of his suffering. And from the vantage point or the perspective of his suffering, we are to glory in his exaltation. as a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. And then what do we do as his people? What do we do? Brothers, sisters, we persevere in our own adversity because he persevered for us through his 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Listen. For this is commen- Turn there with me. Turn there, 1 Peter. We're, we're close. It's raining outside. We've got time. <laughs> we just need to stay in here until it stops raining. 1 first, first Peter chapter 2. And drop down to verse 19. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. And this is what the Lord was commending this church for in Philadelphia, in verse 10, all right? For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. Because of an informed conscience, informed how? Through the word of God. A conscience informed by the word of God if because of conscience toward god one endures grief suffering wrongly for what that's what's commendable for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently this is commendable before god verse 21 for to this you were called to what exactly to what have we been called we have been called to endure through suffering for the sake of righteousness, like the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? We've been called to endure through suffering, not for, to suffer wrongfully, but to suffer for the sake of righteousness, just like the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's to what we've been called, verse 21. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you and I should follow his steps. That word for example there in verse 21 is a beautiful word. It's a compound word that refers literally to writing under, writing under. Our lives are to be written, so to speak, like a child might trace letters on a page. We are to pattern our lives after his perfect life in response to um, our tribulation, our suffering. We're to pattern our lives after his example, like a child might trace out a picture or trace out letters on a page, literally writing under, (laughs) literally uh, underwriting, if you will, our lives according to his own. Why is that? Verse 22 he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Hebrews chapter two says that the Lord Jesus Christ was made perfect. It's an interesting use of language there. Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. What does Hebrews 2 mean by made perfect? In other words, he who is perfect fulfilled or completed a perfect obedience. He fulfilled or completed a perfect obedience. He loved us to the end, to the uttermost. Loved us start to finish. Nothing left undone. Nothing left unfulfilled. He fulfilled a perfect righteousness. And how did he do it? Through a completed, full, and perfect suffering to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's how he's made perfect, right? He, he was made perfect through suffering. In other words, his suffering to the point of death, even the death of the cross, is seen to be vindicated as a perfect suffering. He was made perfect through suffering. And just as suffering in justice for the sake of righteousness was the path to joy and glory for our Lord, suffering in justice for the sake of righteousness will be the path to joy and glory for those who are in union with him through faith. Brothers and sisters, we have been called to follow in his steps. What does that mean? Suffering it means endurance, it means perseverance. Means follow, following his example, walking in his footprints, (laughs) so to speak, uh, tracing out your life according to his, like a child might trace letters on a page. For that reason, for that reason, Hebrews two says he is not ashamed to call us brothers. We're to follow him. Suffering will certainly come. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's going to come. You'll suffer in many different ways. You're gonna suffer certainly for the cause of Christ. You're gonna suffer certainly for the cause of the gospel. And listen, brothers and sisters, we don't suffer in the same way that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered, right? We don't suffer. We haven't yet. Uh, You've not yet strived to the point of bloodshed against sin. Uh, We don't suffer in the same way that the, the apostles suffered or many disciples throughout history. We may. You may be called to suffer in that way. We need to be prepared to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. These letters, these addresses are to the church militant, to the church in her warfare. Throughout this age, perilous times have come. Times will grow, imposters will grow worse and worse. We need to be prepared as the church at Philadelphia obviously and evidently was, we need to be prepared to follow the Lord's example of perseverance under affliction. Now, far, far from teaching that believers are spared tribulation or spared suffering in the Christian life, the word of God and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself warn us that tribulation and suffering for the sake of righteousness will be the, you could almost say it, the guaranteed experience of all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Jesus. There are many think in dispensational premillennialism that the church is spared suffering. Our brothers and sisters throughout history have not been spared suffering. There is no indication in the word of God that we're going to be spared suffering, quite to the contrary. Scripture continuously warns us that we live through tribulation. It is with much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. This is a very important point to understanding your eschatology. We are going to face suffering and difficulty, persecution and affliction in the Christian life to the point until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Right? We're going to look at that as we work through the text and then continue to work through Revelation. Revelation. Listen to John chapter 16, verse 1. John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ addressing his disciples in the upper room, verse 1, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Why is the Lord teaching the church at Philadelphia this? And why is this letter, this address to the church at Philadelphia so pertinent to us, so applicable to us, because we are also the church militant. We are also in an age of tribulation. We're also going to face suffering and we should not be made to stumble. The Lord has told us these things would come about. We need to take him at his word and trust him in faith and follow his example, right? These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you so that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And we're to trust him who is sovereign over all these things. He told us they would come, and they do, and we trust him, right? Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John chapter 17 verse 11. Jesus prays. Now I am no longer in the world, but these, his disciples, these are in the world. I come to you. Holy Father, keep. Same word, te reo. Maintain. Hold on to. Preserve through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them. Te I preserved them. I maintained them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the Son of Perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who kept them through their suffering. He kept them, preserved them, maintained them through, not from, through their suffering such that none were lost except Judas in fulfillment of the scriptures. None were taken out of the world. He specifically prays. Listen to John chapter 17, verse 14. Listen, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them. Same grammar, same construction, same word, te reo. I pray that you should keep them, preserve them, maintain them, keep them from the evil one. Acts chapter 14, Paul, strengthening the churches that had been planted at the preaching of the gospel on his first missionary journey, Strengthen them and encourage them to persevere in the faith with these words from verse 22. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many tribulations in order to enter the kingdom. If you did a word study on the word tribulation in the New Testament, you would find that in every case where the word is used, and I've got one, I can send it to you if you'd like me to, Every case where the word is used, it refers to the tribulation of the church in the church age, with the exception of a reference to great tribulation that comes at the very end of the age. There is a final iteration, if you will, of great tribulation that comes at the very end of the age. We'll see some of that tonight. Tribulation is something that the church goes through. We are in an age of tribulation now, a period of tribulation now. Philippians chapter one, verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Does that give you enough material to feel confident about that? Okay, okay. We want to be confident about what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here. It's important that we understand this. Now, the record of believers in the Bible, the record of believers in the history of the church also bears this out, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. Listen, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings yes, of chains and of imprisonment, of tribulation. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us through the new covenant, So that those Old Testament saints should not be made perfect apart from us. Let me ask you, they suffered, they suffered in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. They suffered for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will not be glorified apart from us on this side of the cross. They're not going to be glorified apart from us. Do you really think that we're going to be glorified apart from their example of suffering? Do you really think that we're going to be glorified apart from the Lord Jesus Christ's example of suffering? No. Apart from the Lord's example, it has been granted not only for us to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. We're not promised freedom from suffering. The scriptures simply do not communicate that, right? Very important. You're not gonna find that in the Bible. So first, we see the condition under which the Lord makes his promise to the church at Philadelphia. The church has persevered through suffering. The church has kept his word. They have not denied his name. They have maintained a fidelity, if you will, a faithfulness, a devotion to the Lord's own example of patient endurance, perseverance through tribulation. The Lord didn't spare them tribulation. He did not remove them from tribulation. He preserved them through tribulation and that by the means of their faith and they've not denied his name they've been faithful to him and he says to them a wonderful commendation in verse 10 you've kept the word or you've kept the example of my own perseverance we want to hear that don't we (laughs) well done good and faithful servant but for the Lord Jesus Christ to say you've kept my example you followed my example you've kept the word or the example of my own perseverance wow a, a beautiful commendation Now, next, next. Consider then the nature of the Lord's promise to them in verse 10. We've considered the condition under which the Lord makes that promise. Now consider the nature of the promise itself, verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, here it is, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. You've got to put your thinking caps on with me now. This statement is one of the most common, if not the most common proof texts for a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. For a rapture, a catching up of the church that takes place before a period of tribulation. Uh, In listening to many uh, on this subject, dispensational pre-millennialists Many would say that Revelation 3.10 is the critical text of all the texts they might point to. Revelation 3.10 is it, is the definitive text. Let's look now at verse 10 through that lens for a moment. Look at the text with me through that lens. If you're looking for a future rapture of the church, if that's what you're looking for, where the church is taken up and out of this world, while those lost people who remain are made to endure tribulation, this sounds like that. Doesn't it? Verse 10 sounds like that. If that's what you're looking for, verse 10 seems to fit the bill. There is an hour of trial coming. Verse 10. It is coming upon the whole world and that trial is coming to test those who dwell on the earth. That sounds like the tribulation, those who see in the Bible a seven-year tribulation period, sometime in the future. And the Lord's promise to keep them from that hour of trial sounds like his promise to rapture the church and take them out of the world. That's what it sounds like. And this, and this particular passage then becomes the primary proof text for a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I will keep you from that hour, the Lord promises. Now, you have to understand that this interpretation is based upon a very faulty presupposition and a couple of very faulty assumptions. One very faulty presupposition and a couple of faulty assumptions. First, the very faulty presupposition, very faulty presupposition, is that the church is somehow promised exemption from suffering. Or exemption from wrath. Exemption from God's outpouring of judgment upon the world. You have to presuppose that the church has somehow promised that. We've examined already the church has promised precisely the opposite, haven't we? Not only that, read the Bible. (laughs) Read your Bible. Where was Israel when the plagues were being poured out on Egypt? Read your Bible. Where Where was Daniel... When the nation was carried off in judgment for their lack of faithfulness, he was there with them, wasn't he? Enduring. The Bible is replete, example after example after example, of God glorifying himself in the salvation of his people through judgment. So the very faulty presupposition is that the church has somehow promised exemption from suffering, and it isn't. Now you have to then assume here's one of the faulty assumptions you have to assume that the hour of trial refers to the period of tribulation that comes at the end of the age. You have to make an assumption, make a leap, that this hour of trial refers to, in their eschatology, a period of tribulation that comes at the end of the age. And then you have to assume, you have to assume that I will keep you from that hour refers to the Lord removing the church from the earth. That's a big leap. It's a big leap, okay? You have to assume that the hour of trial refers to the period of tribulation that comes at the end of the age and, and listen, doesn't apply to the church at Philadelphia in the first century that the Lord is addressing, that the Lord is writing to, that it doesn't apply to them. It's going to apply to some period at the end of the age and then you have to assume that I will keep you from that hour refers to the Lord removing the church from the earth. A couple of very big assumptions and a very faulty presupposition. The Bible doesn't assert any of those things, does it? In fact, the Bible actually asserts precisely the opposite. Back to John 17, verse 14. John 17, verse 14. Here the construction, the grammatical instruction, is precisely the same, and frankly the only place in the New Testament where it is precisely the same, as the grammar in Revelation chapter 3. If we're going to understand of the grammar of Revelation chapter 3, we could turn to John 17 to gain an understanding of what is meant in Revelation chapter 3. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus says, verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them. Same grammar, same word, preserve them, maintain them, or preserve them from the evil one. Well, the very same word, the very same grammar, as Revelation three ten that you should keep them from the evil one. Is there in Revelation three that I will keep you from the hour of trial? Now, where is the evil one? He's in the world. <laughs> He's in the world. Our adversary walks the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's First Peter chapter five verse eight. He has come down to the earth with great wrath, knowing his time is short. That's Revelation twelve twelve. Where is the wrath poured out? In Revelation chapter three, verse 10, it's poured out upon the earth and those who dwell upon the earth. So whatever the Lord means by keep them from in John 17, he certainly does not mean that God will take them out of the world. Jesus Christ prays that they would not be taken out of the world. He explicitly says that in John chapter 17, verse 15, and he uses the same construction in Revelation chapter three, verse 10. So then... What does being kept mean? What does it mean? What does it mean to be kept from the evil one? What does it mean to be kept from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole earth? It means to be preserved, it means to be guarded. In John 17, Jesus said that while he was on the earth, he kept them, he preserved them. In other words, he guarded them, he ensured their spiritual safety. Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat and Jesus Christ prayed that his faith would not fail. Do you see? He kept them. He preserved them. He ensured, he guarded them. He held them in his hands and he never let them go. (laughs) None of them was lost except the son of perdition and fulfillment of the scriptures. Were they kept from persecution? No. And the disciples suffered. The disciples suffered. Were they kept from, uh, from suffering for the name of Jesus Christ? No, they weren't. They were kept from Satan. They were kept from apostasy. They were kept in his name. That's what the Lord is graciously promising his people and in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Have disciples of Jesus Christ ever been promised a free pass from persecution? Ever. No. Are we ever promised freedom from suffering? With the exception of glory. We look forward to that promise, right? No. There are saints under the altar in Revelation chapter 6 who have been slain for the word of God and for their testimony during the period of tribulation. They were kept by God, weren't they? They were kept. How do we know they were kept? They're, They're beheaded. They're slain. They've been slain, put to death for the word of their testimony, the Bible says, and yet God has kept them. How do we know He's kept them? They're under the altar in heaven in the throne room of God, crying out, Lord, how long? Given a white robe. right? They're kept. They're kept by God. So listen, what is more plausible then? And I want you to think with me, and I don't mean to be um, crass in this, but it's very important to set it on the table the way that it is, okay? What is more plausible then? Looking at this from the perspective of premillennial dispensationalism and a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, What's more plausible then, that Jesus Christ doesn't actually come again once at the end of the age, like the Bible actually says that he will, everywhere that it speaks of his return, it speaks of his return at once, as once at the end of the age, but rather, despite what the Bible actually describes, Jesus actually returns twice. The first time he comes back, he does not come back. He does not, in fact, come so that every eye sees him, like the Bible says that he will. He does not come in the clouds of heaven, as the angels themselves had said in Acts 1. He does not come with the shout of the archangel. He does not come back with the sound of the trumpet, like lightning flashing from east to west, then gathering his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, The sun will not be darkened. The moon will continue to give its light. The stars will remain where they are and the heavens will not shake. Why? Why? Because Jesus Christ actually comes back two times. Two times, which is said nowhere in the Bible. And the first time is a secret time, which the Bible never describes. He has decided that he will, in fact, take them out of the world, unlike all believers in all of human history, he will actually remove them from any suffering during a time of tribulation. We know that Jesus said it has been appointed not only for us to believe, but also to suffer, but not this generation. This generation is an exception, which the Bible never says. Believers will be magically whisked away from it all, Not those who come to believe during this time, though, because those who come to believe during this time, they're going to have to go through it. Only those who come to believe before this time comes. Pilots will suddenly disappear and planes will crash. Babies will suddenly disappear from the wombs of lost women. Disobedient children, orphaned, as their believing parents are whisked away. And the only place... Listen, the only place in the Bible that could plausibly be used to support a pre-tribulational rapture like that of the church is Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. The only place, and we've already seen in that text how you have a very faulty presupposition and two very faulty assumptions to make. Do you see? There is no text what about Matthew chapter 24, verse 36? Two men in a field, and one is taken. Two women grinding at a mill, and one of them is taken. The other one is left. The Lord uses, in Matthew 24, verses 36 and following, the Lord uses those words to compare the day of judgment to the way that it was in the days of Noah when the flood came. He says, just like the flood when it came in those days, at a time they did not know and took them away, so will the coming, singular, of the Son of Man be. Two men in a field, one taken away in judgment, the other left. Two women grinding at the mill, one of them taken away in judgment, the other left, not taken away in a rapture. And just reading the context of Matthew 24 teaches us that very thing. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised. Well, let me ask you, how many... Last trumpets are there. When does the last trumpet sound? (laughs) At the singular, visible, and obviously audible return of Jesus Christ at the end. That text is actually a post-tribulation text. Do you see? What about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15? Well, are you referring to the text that mentions that we who are alive at the singular coming of the Lord Jesus Christ... Well, let's read that text together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. Listen. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the singular, not double, right? Plural. The singular coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend secretly from heaven. No. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. That's the last trumpet, do you see? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That's where we get our word rapture from. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That, in fact, is also a post-tribulational rapture text. What about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. We agree with that. He did not appoint us to wrath. That's why we don't go to hell, but rather we obtain salvation. You simply, and that's why that handout is on the welcome desk, hopefully, um, about the rapture. You simply cannot appeal to any text of Scripture and support any sufficient case for a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. We simply do not have any texts to work with. You simply don't have the texts. I was a (laughs) card-carrying dispensationalist, a card-carrying dispensational premillennialist for much of my uh, converted life as, as a Christian. And what was it that convinced me? I didn't have any texts I couldn't go to the Bible and support it. We simply don't have the text. In fact, in fact, the texts all point to a post-tribulation rapture of the church. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. And the clearest, one of the clearest texts we have. Verse 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the Lord is speaking now of a time of great tribulation at the very end of the age. Tribulation, uh, Matthew twenty four, is described like a woman uh, in birth pangs, right? Birth pains increase in frequency and in severity until the baby comes, right? And so, in a similar fashion, tribulation increases increases in frequency and in severity until the end. It's worse and worse. So there will come a point in time at the end of the age, at the climax, if you will, of all of redemptive history, where there will be a period of great tribulation. Immediately before, immediately after, after the great tribulation at the end of the age, those days, immediately after, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. There it is again, the last trumpet. And they will, what are they going to do? They're going to gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Well, what does that sound like? Sounds like the rapture of the church. There, um, is that unclear in any way? <laughs> it doesn't require much commentary. It's so clear from Matthew 24. So in closing, where, where, did, this, where did all this come from? Where did this come from? Dispensationalism or a, a pre-tribulational rapture of the church? Strangely enough, the notion began as a Roman Catholic argument against the Reformers. The Reformers saw the Pope as the Antichrist and the Roman Catholic Church as the harlot of Babylon from the book of Revelation. So a sect of Roman Catholics called the Jesuits developed an eschatology of futurism. Futurism to take the emphasis off of them in that present age, the church, uh, the pope as the antichrist, and the church as the whore of Babylon. They developed an eschatology of futurism. The antichrist wasn't the pope; it was a single guy at the end of the age. Uh, Later, a Jesuit named Emmanuel Lacunza, writing under a very deceitful pen name, uh, Rabbi Ben Ezra, supposedly a Jew who had been converted to Jesus Christ, very deceitful. Emmanuel Lacunza wrote for the first time that Jesus Christ returns, not once, but twice. And the first time that he comes, he comes to rescue his church before they fall prey to this end times antichrist. He raptures his church before the end. That book by Emmanuel Lacunza, written by uh, his pen name, Rabbi Ben Ezra, published in 1812, 1812, a Scottish preacher named Edward Irving, loved the book, translated into English in 1827 after hearing a voice from heaven telling him to preach the secret rapture of the church. So Irving, an early forerunner of the charismatic movement, (laughs) began holding prophetic conferences. In 1830, a young woman named Margaret MacDonald prophesied that the Lord would secretly rapture his people. In September of that year, in September of 1830, Irving's journal explained how the church at Philadelphia from Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, would escape the coming tribulation through the rapture. Difficult to imagine how that's the case when he's writing in 1830 and the address to the church at Philadelphia was in the first century. Never mind those difficulties. Uh, It wasn't long before J.N. Darby, uh, C.I. Schofield, uh, the Schofield Bible fame, and others were pushing dispensational premillennialism through conferences in the United States. What has been then the historical understanding of Revelation chapter 3 verse 10? Unless you're working from an agenda, what is the natural reading of Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 in the context of scripture? What reading most consistently comports with the Bible? What, What reading rejects Faulty presuppositions and assumptions or foolish inferences forced upon the text. What is the natural reading is that the Lord promises to preserve His people through the hour of trial, through their hour of trial. Every people in every generation have their own hour of trial. And the Lord graciously, we sang this morning, He will hold me fast. That's Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Through our suffering, through our affliction, through our difficulty, our adversity, through our tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ promises to hold us fast. He will protect them and preserve them through tribulation. Those that dwell on the earth is exclusively used in Revelation to refer to unbelievers. The word hour would seem to suggest a short period of time. The hour of trial would seem then to suggest a short and intense period of difficulty. And so that trial of difficulty, that hour of trial, will put unbelievers to the test for a short, intense period. Now, a test is used to determine the nature of the thing, a nature of a thing, whether it's true or false. So what do you think this test will determine of unbelievers? It will determine them to be not his. False, right? Those believers who've put faith in Jesus Christ, for those living and walking by faith, the Lord says, I will preserve you. Satan may ask to sift you like wheat. I'm going to pray that your faith will not fail. I'm going to see to it that your faith will not fail. Who's he making that promise to? He's making that promise to the church at Philadelphia in the first century, and he's making that promise to the church in Oviedo in our century. (laughs) His church throughout the age, his churches. Churches throughout this age who would remain faithful, those churches who would keep his word and refuse to deny his name. Those who would keep the word or the example of his own perseverance through suffering. And according to scripture, there is a progression in frequency, a progression in severity to these trials that test those who dwell on the earth. And it's apparent that that progression, like pains on a pregnant woman, will culminate in a great tribulation at the end of the age, preceding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven where every eye will see him. But the church at Philadelphia is about to face their own part, their own installment, if you will, in that progressive pattern. And brothers and sisters, we need to be prepared in our day to face our own installment of that pattern in our day. If the Lord tarries and he doesn't come back, For a while, we're going to face our own installment in that progress of suffering. How do we prepare? We stand at the watch, remain vigilant. We refuse to deny his name. We keep his word. We walk in his footsteps. We maintain our following after his own example. And we depend entirely upon him who has promised in his word to preserve us through our difficulty. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise to us that you will preserve us, your promise to keep us. And we see, Lord, in scripture, in history, your faithfulness to your word in keeping and preserving your own. Not one of them lost except that wicked son of perdition. And we praise you, Lord, you are glorious and you are worthy of our worship, worthy of our faith, because you are faithful and true. And we know, Lord, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, Lord, to endure by faith in the power of your Spirit, through our own sufferings and difficulties, may not one be lost. May you, Lord, in in faithfulness to your promise, please, Lord, keep us, preserve us. Preserve us in strength, preserve us in wisdom, preserve us in faithfulness, preserve us in fruitfulness, and may it be for your glory into the ages. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.